That's such a joy, or a real joy. Have baptisms last week, new members. We have several other new members scheduled in the next several weeks, and you'll get to, to hear their testimonies and to rejoice with them. Have you ever read a book that you get to the ending and you feel frustrated because the author, whether intentionally or unintentionally, didn't resolve something? Have you ever read a book like that? Yes. So um, there's a book, a strange, strange novel by the uh, Southern author Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a novel called Wise Blood. She's got all these strange characters in it. And um, one of the characters is named Enoch. And about the third chapter from the end, uh, Enoch, who's sort of bizarre but sort of represents the reader, uh, dresses up in a gorilla costume and works his way out to the highway waiting for something to happen. Well, by the end of the book, Flannery O'Connor resolves everything with all of the characters except for Enoch. We don't know what happens to Enoch. Critics of, of her uh, novel say she forgot. Some say, oh no, it was intended. We don't know exactly what she was thinking, but what we know is that Enoch was left on the side of the road, left in a gorilla suit. <laughs> what happened to him? Did he ever get out of that suit? Did somebody pick him up? Did he become a gorilla in Africa? We, we just don't know what happened to Enoch. So that kind of unresolved tension causes just that, doesn't it? It causes tension. We have had such a good time going through the Gospel of John. 20 chapters so far of the Gospel of John, and, and we saw in chapter 20 how through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John tied together all of these themes, the major themes that have been going on through the Gospel, except for one thing. There's one thing that's yet unresolved, and it's a very important thing. The denial of Peter when he denied Jesus Christ and disowned him publicly remains unresolved. You know that that incident is so important that it's one of the few incidents in the life of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. But if we didn't have John chapter 21, we would never know what happened to Peter. We know through the book of Acts that he became a great leader in the church, but how? How did he get there? How did he deal with this awful thing that happened to him in the past, a very bad decision that he made? What did Jesus do in him? We would never know except for the chapter that we're going to look at today, John chapter 21. So pray with me before we begin our study together. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we will see today and how much we are like Peter. And just as Peter needed you to restore him, we need your restoration. So Lord, speak to us today, speak through me, and work in our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So let's back up. Three years before this moment that we're going to look at today, Jesus calls out to two men, Peter and his brother Andrew. He calls out to them and he says, follow me. And the scriptures tell us that at that moment, Peter and Andrew left everything they had, turned and followed Jesus. Three years later, it's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. And Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow and none of you 
will be there for me. You're all going to abandon me. Well, Peter, in his boldness, he says, no, that's not true, Lord. Actually, all of these others may abandon you, but I will not. I committed to following you back then, and I will follow you tonight, and I will follow you even to your death. And Jesus reminds him, he says, Peter, you have a little too much self-confidence. You've overestimated your courage. You, in fact, will disown me this very night. And so just a later, little later on that evening, Jesus is taken and he's being led through the courtyard to the court cases that he will face. And Peter's following him. And Peter comes and warms himself by this charcoal fire around with which there's a group of people. And as he's warming himself around the charcoal fire, they begin to say, hey, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Yes, you even have a Galilean accent. You must be one of his. And at that moment, Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. A rooster crows. Jesus turns and looks at Peter through the courtyard. Peter catches Jesus' eyes and runs out and weeps bitterly. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Before this, what's Peter thinking? My last interaction with Jesus, seeing his eyes look at me, knowing that my last words were, no, I'm not one of his, when I was so bold and thought I would be. And now, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus stands in the midst of Peter and the disciples. And there's no resolution between Peter and Jesus. A week later, it happens again. Jesus comes and appears among the disciples in that same place. Peter sees Jesus. But there's no resolution yet. Why? What's keeping him? What's keeping Peter from, from saying, Jesus, I'm sorry. You saw what I did. Was it shame? Was he embarrassed? Did he think maybe Jesus forgot Maybe Jesus would just excuse it. It's no big deal. So now we come to the passage that we read probably several weeks later. And seven of the disciples are out on a boat all night long fishing and not catching a fish. It was a terrible night for them. And they're still wondering, what's going on? We still don't understand this. But they're out in this boat. Morning comes. They're about to wrap it up. Jesus is on the shore and he hollers to them, cast your net on the right side, which was familiar words to them. They had heard that once before. They throw the net in and catch such a large catch of fish, they they can hardly pull it in. But this time the nets didn't break like it did three years before. And they're trying to pull the, the, the nets in and suddenly they remember, wait, Jesus did that before. And John says, Peter, that's the Lord. Peter turns and looks, sees Jesus, and says, I'm leaving the fish with you guys. I'm going. And he jumps in, and he's he's walking through the water trying to get to Jesus. The rest of the disciples are in the boat trying to haul this this net full of fish. They can hardly move it, so much so that Peter actually turns around and goes back and helps them drag that fish, that, that net in. This is the third time that Jesus has appeared. Peter's so excited to see Jesus. 
So the morning starts with that incredible catch of fish. And then Jesus invites Peter and the others to breakfast. And what's on the menu but fish and bread? And right away, I'm sure the disciples are thinking about the time that Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few fish and bread. And this time, Jesus invites them and says, bring some of your fish here, symbolically saying, from now on, the work is ours together. It's not just me. We are working at this together, becoming fishers of men together. So they bring it on, and, and they're cooking the fish over a charcoal fire. It smells so good. These fishermen are so hungry, so ready for a good breakfast. It smells great to everyone except Peter. That smell, oh, it brings him back. It brings him back to the night that he was a fake the night that he disowned his Lord. He can't stand the smell of it. I want to get away. Breakfast was delicious and it was well needed. They were hungry. But don't you wonder, did Peter even eat? Or if he did, did it sit right? Fish for breakfast never sounds like it's going to sit right for me. I just want to say that. Oh, what was Peter thinking? You know, he was so excited to see Jesus. He jumped off the boat, couldn't wait to get to him. But still there's this gnawing unresolved problem. Oh, he wants that good fellowship with Jesus. He ran for it, but still there's something in between him, him and Jesus. Their fellowship is marred. He didn't want to expose himself before Jesus. So in the smell and the view of that charcoal fire, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He gives Peter the chance to affirm his love. Now, if I were Peter, I would answer one of two ways. I would say, well, of course I love you. I've been following you for three years. And remember that, that time that you asked all of us, who do, you, who do you say I am? Nobody got it right but me. I'm the one who said you're the Messiah. And remember the night before you were crucified? I took out my sword. I went to behead a guy. Yeah, I had bad aim. I just got his ear. But still, you know my heart. I was the only one to protect you. Of course, well, there was that incident where I denied you. But Lord, you see the whole picture. Well, let's not worry about that. I might have said that. I might have also taken a different approach. I might have said to, to a Jesus, if I were Peter, well, I, I say I love you, but Lord, I, I did deny you. And, and I don't know if I love you now, because if I really loved you, how could I have done that? I, I loved you, and I know I feel like I love you, Lord, but, but I think if I really loved you, I, I wouldn't have wouldn't have done that. You see, we are, we are all very good at being self-condemning or being really good at validating and minimizing our sin. We all do that. I think it's so fascinating that when Peter answers Jesus three times, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And each time he answered, he didn't do either of those things. He said, Lord, you know I love you. You see, Peter was not answering him based on his performance. He was answering him based on the Lord's knowledge of him. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. 
Jesus knew all about Peter's love, and Peter was banking on that. Lord, you know, because I clearly don't. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I did. I don't know why I did it. Lord, you know I love you. He is resting in the omniscience of the Lord. And in the same way, the Lord knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. And when we spend time validating our sin or self-condemning ourselves, then we lose out on the opportunity for the Lord to do his work on us. So can we take a moment now and just listen to what the Lord really has to say about our sin? Listen to this. This is all from the scripture. Yes, he knows that you are a sinner, but he also knows that he died so that the power and penalty of sin will have no, no more power over you. He knows that your sins are as scarlet as wool, but he knows that he has made them white as snow. He knows that your sins stand and accuse you, but he also knows that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He knows that our sin deserves death, but he also knows that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And he knows that our hearts are darkened in our understanding of him but he also knows that he has put in us a new heart and a new spirit to follow him. Follower, the call is obvious. The call is obvious to us. We must go to the Lord with our sin. Stop holding it. Stop hanging on to it. Stop validating it. Stop wallowing in your self-pity. You know, we are masters of validation, aren't we? making too little of our sin. And this just keeps us from going to the Lord. And you know how this goes. Oh, if if my husband weren't a bully, I I wouldn't have to complain so much. If, If my wife would stop nagging me, I wouldn't have to be so harsh. If my parents treated me better, I wouldn't have to control everything in my life. If my needs were met, I wouldn't have to be so afraid. If my situation were better, I could maybe trust the Lord a little more. But follower of Christ, your sin is not about your boss, not about your husband, your wife, your parents, your children. Your sin is about you and Jesus. And when we treat our sin in this validating kind of way, when we rationalize our sin, we are minimizing it and we're not speaking honestly about it. The way that David spoke about it when he said, against you and you only have I sinned? Oh, he could have had a hundred excuses. Well, she's so beautiful, and well, she was outside, and she wasn't dressed well, and and he could have had a hundred excuses. Against you and you only have I sinned. We are also masters of self-condemnation, aren't we? where we make too much of our sin. Now, there is a natural conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit when we sin. We should feel the weight of of our disobedience and of of our denying of Christ. We should feel that weight. 
But when we allow that to stop us and it becomes shame, where we, we begin to shame ourselves and live in that shame, then we're in trouble because that's what keeps us from going to the Lord. You see, shame isolates us. Shame makes us pull in and say, no, nobody can see me. Nobody look. This is too dark. And that's not what the Lord has for us. We begin to, to, to become addicted to what we hate the most, which is that shame, that isolation and pain. We live in it, we wallow in it, thinking that somehow it will, it will make us have due penance for our sin. But it never pays for the sin. It never undoes the sin. It never deals with the sin. So we have to question what was in Peter's heart. We don't know. You know, he was excited to come and see Jesus, but yet, yet, did he come for restoration? We don't know that, but Jesus didn't let it go any further. Follower of Christ, stop validating your sin. Follower of Christ, stop living in shame. Jesus initiated Peter's reconciliation and his restoration. And he's calling to you today to do the same, to do exactly the same thing. Will you face the truth about your sin? Will you stop telling yourself what it isn't and tell yourself what the Lord says it is and deal honestly with it? Listen to what he speaks about it. It's time to get on. It's time to deal with these issues and get on and allow him to deal with the sin in the right way. You know, Peter ran to the only one who could actually heal his memories. He ran to the only one who could actually rewrite the pictures and the sounds and the smells of his failure. In spite of what he did, Jesus was still on his side. But he didn't know it until weeks later when Jesus finally said, Peter, let's solve this now. Let's stop running. Let's deal with the problem. And that's what Jesus does for each one of us. You see, Jesus wants to take us, each one of us, back to that charcoal fire. To smell the smell of our ugly past. He wants to review the past with me and he wants to put it in the right perspective. He wants to unburden us of the destructive past and he wants to to have us receive his gracious forgiveness. Now, in order to do that, we may need others. We may need counselors. We may need counseling. But do it. Stop, stop sitting on the aisles and, and get moving with the Lord. It's time to do that. Did you notice that Jesus met every one of Peter's declarations with a call. He didn't just say, oh yeah, you're right, you do love me. He said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, right? He's calling him, and who are these sheep and lambs? Well, they're the church. You see, when we are restored to Jesus, we are also restored to the church. We are restored to the people and the other followers of Christ. Jesus didn't stay, say to Peter, stay here. Let's just eat fish and bread for the rest of our lives together and enjoy this beautiful moment. 
He said, no, now that you've done this, now that you've feasted with me, now go. Go and fulfill the purpose that I have for you. You see, Peter, I have great plans for you, much better plans than you sitting here or here. My plans are for you to get moving and to fulfill the purpose I have, and that is to become the apostle that he, he became, certainly one of, the, one of the top leaders of the church. And it's the same for us. Jesus says to us, okay, get settled with the sin, get it right, think of it the way I think of it, and now stop feasting and get moving. Right, we've gotta, we've gotta move on. See, we're called to become fruit bearers. All through the Gospel of John, we've heard that word, right? Bearing fruit for the Lord. You must be abide in the vine so you can bear fruit. So Jesus talked about that repeatedly. So you want to know what your purpose in, is in life? You want to know what God's will is for your life? It's to bear fruit, to bear fruit for him. And what does fruitful living look like? Well, let me review that with you. Biblically, fruitful living looks like boldly and increasingly growing in the fruit of the Spirit, which would be love, joy, peace, listen, patience, kindness, goodness, are you hearing it? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These should be growing and abounding in our lives. And if they're not, then we are not living fruitfully, which means there's probably something that needs to be dealt with. Fruitful living means that we are living with lips of praise. That means that we should see increasing in our lives less criticism, less less negativity and more praise and glorifying, more encouraging uh, uh, to live so that what Paul prayed, you know, Lord, let everything that comes out of our mouth be for the purpose of building others up. That's our goal. I know we don't always do that, but that's the goal. And we should be on the way. And if you're not on the way, then you're not living a fruitful life. Another fruit that the the Bible talks about is the fruit of a generous heart of giving, coming to an understanding that my money is not my own. The Lord desires for me to be a conduit so that you're blessed through me. So that means not holding on to what isn't mine, but giving it, helping others in need, giving to the work of the Lord. That's a fruit that we should see increasing in our lives. And if it's not increasing, then we're not living a fruitful life. And then finally, another fruit that the the scriptures talk about is the fruit of equipping others for growth in Christ, discipling, disciple-making. Again, these are choices we make. The choice to pour into somebody else in order that they may also become a fruit bearer just like you are. That's what the Lord is calling us to. That's what he's calling us to. Now, let me, let's back up for a moment here. When we look at Peter, we saw three years ago, I'll follow you. The night before, I'll follow you even to death. He failed. He couldn't follow through with the following he hoped to do. But in this last scene, we see that Peter is restored. He's commissioned to his work. And finally, he will get to fulfill what he wanted. Jesus actually ends that passage by saying, Peter, you will actually die for me. And I think Peter, 
must have been thankful for the chance. Lord, I said I would, and I didn't. I disowned you. And now the Lord is going to give Peter the, the opportunity to die for him. And we know that Peter, Peter did. Peter was martyred. And Jesus' last words to Peter there are, follow me. Follow me. So what does it mean to follow me? How does Jesus de define following me? Well, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Do you know that word there, deny himself, is the same word that's used to describe Peter's denial? Okay, so if that's the case, that means that if I must deny myself, I must disown me. I must say, I don't belong to him anymore. That, that's not who I am. I've denied that. I, I've disowned that man. It means I say I don't know him. It means, it means I say I don't owe allegiance to this man anymore. And I'm not talking about giving up chocolate for Lent, okay? I'm talking about giving up the throne of my life. I'm talking about abdicating and saying, I'm not on that throne anymore. Jesus, take it. I've done a poor job with it all these years. Jesus, you take it. That's what it means to follow me. Jesus also says, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross daily. So you understand that a person who's carrying their cross is a person who's condemned to die, right? We don't carry crosses unless we're going to die. So when we say, when Jesus says for us to take up our cross, he's saying we must die to ourselves. That means we need to put our old self in the position of condemnation, of a condemned criminal. The Apostle Paul reminds us those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So the, the call to take up our cross is a call to consider the old man dead and live in the new man. Every day, every day we are invited to give up our independence and declare our unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that sounds like a lot. I don't, I don't know if I want to do, deny myself, take up my cross. That's too much. Why? Why would I want to do that? Well, Jesus tells us why. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Follower, if you follow Christ the way he is calling you to follow by denying self and taking up your cross, you will gain life. You will find your identity, who you were really meant to be. You're not living who you were meant to be if you're not following him in, in this kind of a way. This is where we find our pur purpose. I, one of my favorite authors is John Stott, and I want to read this. Listen to these words. He says, the astonishing paradox of Christ's teaching and of Christian experience is, is that when we lose ourselves following Christ, we actually find ourselves. True self-denial is true self-discovery. To live for ourselves is insanity and suicide. To live for God and for others is wisdom and life indeed. We do not begin to find ourselves until we become willing to lose ourselves in the service of Christ and of others. So now we have the opportunity to respond to Christ. 
You see, Jesus, just like he spoke to Peter, he looks at each one of us and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you think rightly about your sin? Have you dealt with your sin? Have you restored fellowship with me? And then if you have, let's get moving. See, the kingdom of God is on the move, right? It's possible to be following the Lord and be a mile behind. I don't want to follow that way. When I follow the Lord, I want to be so close that the dust of his sandals is kicking up on me. I want to be following so close that I could smell the sweetness of his breath and his grace coming, coming off of him onto me. I want to be that close. Do you want to be that close with him? Do you want to follow that way? Would you join me in following the Lord that way? That's the call today. That was the call to Peter, and that is the call to every one of us as Jesus deals with us. So I'm going to ask that you close your eyes now. As you bow your heads, I will pray in a moment. And as as I do, I'm going to ask the question, are you willing to admit the truth about your sin? To say what it really is, to stop excusing it, to stop incriminating yourself with it, but to speak the truth of Scripture about your sin. Are you tired of being stuck, immobile, unable to find your purpose in Christ, which is to follow hard and to make disciples and to live a fruitful life? Are you willing to deny yourself and take up your cross today? If you are, when I pray, would you please come forward? And as you come forward, then I'll pray with you afterwards and and help you in your walk with Christ and pray together and come to the Lord together about these things. And then after I pray, we'll, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, when you call us, you call us with high demands. It is not easy to give up self. It's not easy to take up my cross. But Lord, what you promise for doing that is so much greater. Forgiveness, unspeakable joy, peace not of this world, fellowship with the one who made us. Oh Lord, You have called us to follow you. And today we make the commitment to follow you close behind. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.